0: Welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. Today's episode was originally published on June 15th, 2018, and we wanted to replay it now, just after our new episode detailing the myriad compounding factors that led to the wildfire disaster on Maui, Because, just as the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans was a warning, so too was the aftermath of Hurricane Maria that devastated Puerto Rico, and understanding the patterns of disaster capitalism is the best first defense against the immoral practices of preying on people when they are at their most vulnerable, which is absolutely the case today in Hawaii. And by the way, I I already tried recording this intro once, and I mistakenly referred to the immoral practices of preying on people when they're at their most valuable, and it was probably one of the darkest Freudian slips I can recall ever making. Sources today include Democracy Now!, On the Media, Infinite Earth Radio, and Ture Show.
1: A stunning new uh, report by researchers at Harvard has revealed the death toll from Hurricane Maria may be 70 times higher than the official count. The official death toll still stands at 64, but the new research says the death toll is at least 4,645 and perhaps as many as 5,740. The Harvard study was published Tuesday in the New England Journal of Medicine.
2: President Trump has so far not responded to the new study. But in October, during a visit to Puerto Rico, Trump boasted about the low official death count.
3: Now, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack, because we've spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico, and that's fine. We've saved a lot of lives. If you look at uh, the—every death is a horror, but if you look at a real catastrophe like Katrina. And you look at the tremendous hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that died. And you look at what happened here with really a storm that was just totally overpowering. Nobody's ever seen anything like this. Now, what is your what is your death count as of this moment? 17, 16, certified. 16 people certified, 16 people versus in the thousands. Uh, you can be very proud of all of your people, all of our people working together. Sixteen versus literally thousands of people.
1: With a with a death toll of at least 4,645, Hurricane Maria would become the second deadliest hurricane in U.S. history, behind only the Galveston Hurricane of 1900, which killed as many as 12,000 people in Texas. The Harvard study surveyed almost 3,300 randomly selected Puerto Rican households and found mortality rates leaped 62 percent from September 20th through the end of 2017, compared with the prior year. Researchers counted not just deaths directly from storm injuries, such as falling debris, but also those who died due to storm-related delays in medical treatment for injuries, infections, and chronic illnesses.
2: The survey found interruption of medical care was the primary cause of sustained high mortality rates in the months after the hurricane, a finding consistent with the widely reported disruption of health systems. Healthcare disruption is now a growing contributor to both morbidity and mortality in natural disasters." Well, for more, we go to San Juan, Puerto Rico, where we're joined by Omaya Sosa, co-founder of Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism, where she's a reporter. Her latest article is headlined, Puerto Rico government did not prevent most Hurricane Maria-related deaths. Welcome back to Democracy Now!, Omaya. Can you start off by talking about the significance of this Harvard study? Um, <clears throat> at the time, it was said something like 60 people were dead. Now this number of between 4,600 and 5,700 people.
4: Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Juan. Thanks for having me here with you again. It's, it's very important. It's, it's significant because it's, uh, there's finally a, a prestiged institution saying what we have been saying for eight months. Uh, everybody's shocked. We are not shocked. We have been saying that uh, the numbers were much higher since the week after the hurricane in September. And, uh, as early as, uh, the first week of December, we had already said that the first month there was more than a thousand casualties. So, um, I'm really glad people are finally listening and, uh, you know, th- things are still really bad. As you said, last week we published a story about the situation in hospitals and healthcare facilities in Puerto Rico. And, uh, how they contributed to this high uh, death toll that the situation is still bad in some places and it's uh, the result of decades of uh, of neglect from the government to this uh, the healthcare system as a whole
1: well, Omaya, I wanted you to know if you could uh, expand on that, because, first of all, the study only goes through December 31st of 2017. Clearly, there were many areas in Puerto Rico that didn't even have electricity into January and February. And so the study doesn't even cover that area. But could you talk about what has happened to the health care system uh, in Puerto Rico, especially the privatization efforts that occurred in the 90s?
4: Well, in Puerto Rico used to have a public healthcare system that in let's say in the 70s was a model like even to the world. By the 90s it had many problems, but it still had a, a leveled um, let's say uh comprehensive healthcare system where you had a primary health care facilities that were public, then you had secondary and tertiary and they were all uh, all over the island in an ordered organized system. And in the 90s, uh, because of the, 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 they were losing a lot of money, the government was losing a lot of money with the healthcare facilities and they had many um, other kinds of problems uh, with the supplies and so forth. They privatized most of the system, leaving only the San Juan uh, hospitals mainly and some uh, minor Centers around the islands, so uh, that's uh, most of the hospitals in Puerto Rico are, are private now. And this hurricane uh, struck in a moment where uh, that was uh, not uh, reorganized. Let's say the government had no control over the hospitals in the rest of the island. And when they started trying to uh, uh, see how they could order the system, they had uh, really no no way. They had no plan. So. Um, Besides this uh, privatization thing, the, the government has also responsibility over the, the, the private hospitals. They license these hospitals, they regulate these hospitals, and they're supposed to inspect these hospitals at least every two, two years. We uh, found out that uh, around 40% of the hospitals had not been inspected, and, uh, we had, we found, uh, places, it's hospitals and healthcare facilities. It's not only hospitals. So you have 70 hospitals and as a whole with, uh, minor, uh, facilities and elderly homes that are also considered healthcare facilities, it's 400. So, um, we found out there were some of these places that were not inspected for eight years, let's say. So there was, there's, uh, on one, on one hand, the privatization of facilities that left the government without any uh, plan to where to channel the patients in this crisis, in, in this emergency, and then you have the situation that the private hospitals were not being inspected as they should be. We asked for all these reports, and uh, no surprise that they didn't give us access to reports. So we don't, don't even know what, uh, what, which ones they inspected, what these uh, reports said. Um, it's part of, a, 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 as you've seen, a, a trend from the GOP, this government to not give any information on this issue. You're suing for the mortality data? I'm sorry? Yes, are we you? are. Actually, That's a, that was a big problem. The, um, the mortality data was one of the main problems we encountered when we started investigating this in September. And uh, it still is. The Harvard report mentions this. Not even they got the data uh, after December. The government has not uh, made public any data at all since December. And we have uh, been suing the government since uh, February for, this, uh, for the complete set of the uh, mortality data so we can know what happened after December in Puerto Rico.
1: And, Amaya, why do you feel that the, uh, from your investigation of this, uh, of this tragedy, that the government has maintained this, uh, clearly false death toll of, uh, first 16, then 64, and even now, even though it's commissioned its own study, uh, it keeps delaying, uh, putting that study out of, of what the actual death toll was. Why do you think that is?
4: You know, um, uh I, I think in the beginning, it just was a matter of uh, looking good that they were being effective in the response because they they knew this was happening from uh, week number two. So, uh, you know, it's very it's it's negligence. uh that they have not uh, attended the situation with the seriousness it it, it needs, and they could have been pre- they could have prevented many many deaths because if from September first week of October you know what's going on, and you take charge of the situation, how many deaths could have been prevented? The data we have that goes until November only uh, shows that deaths were still spiking in November, so um, many could have been prevented in the end. Uh, When nothing, they had no other choice in December, data was so clear that uh, mortality had spiked so much in their own data. The governor had to admit that uh, their numbers were wrong and uh, commissioned the study. But still, I don't think there's a, a real will to, uh, to find out what was going on. We're, we're already in the new hurricane season, season. We have no information. The study is still not ready, the one commissioned by the governor. And uh, I mean, we cannot prepare for the next uh, season.
5: Benjamín out in a park in San Juan recently. He's a columnist and editor for Puerto Rico's largest newspaper, El Nuevo Día.
6: I had not been here since the hurricane. I find it very different. It had a lot of trees, a lot of palms.
5: The green has mostly come back to Puerto Rico, but the trees that lost branches look surreal, like green Q-tips with tufts of leaves coming out of the top. It's still unsettling.
6: As you can see now, it's almost naked.
5: A few weeks earlier, Gotay had written that Maria had ripped the skin off the island, revealing its skeleton and its flesh. We are left, he wrote, looking at ourselves in a warped mirror, confronted with the hardest realities of our collective life.
6: We've been living a long time under the assumption that uh, we are rich or developed country. But the truth is that we have... a. Uh, Enormous portion of our population living on poverty or near poverty. A lot of people living in rundown down houses and houses not prepared to resist the force of a hurricane.
5: Before the storm, Puerto Rico's poverty rate was at nearly 45 percent. For context, Mississippi, the state with the highest poverty rate, is at 21 percent.
6: I use the image that it peeled the skin of Puerto Rico. Because I see it almost as a literal thing. You see uh, a lot of communities that were covered by trees and vegetation. After the hurricane, they were revealed as what they really are.
5: One of the landscape's dominant features, aside from swaying palms and sparkling beaches, are shopping malls and big box stores. The island has the highest density of Walmarts and Walgreens in the world. Most towns have a public square or plaza, but in San Juan, when people say they're going to Plaza, they mean Plaza Las Americas, the mega mall that serves as the city's main meeting place. And generally, that assumed that most people had the money to spend. Inequality wasn't front of mind. But that's changed. This week, a U.N. envoy on extreme poverty and human rights toured Puerto Rico on a fact-finding trip. A study from the University of Puerto Rico found that the storm likely pushed the poverty rate up to 52 percent. In the town of Utuado in the mountains, high school students were decorating the square ahead of a Christmas celebration. Walter Ronald González González was there, too. He's the director of art, culture and tourism for the region, one of the most rural, hardest hit areas of Puerto Rico.
7: We have seen poverty that
6: was covered up because now there are some people who have said, I haven't had electricity in my home for this many years, or I don't have tap water, and I have to use water from the river.
5: This story has long been overlooked by the local news shows, because they prefer to focus on the coverage of sensational crimes, rather than the steady state of deep poverty. But with so many trees gone, some facts are just too visible to be ignored.
6: For example, in the metropolitan area, there is a young guy who lives under a bridge. He has lived there for years, but now he can be seen. And over that bridge travels thousands of metro area residents. How is it possible that now, because a tree moved, they can see him for the first time?
5: Now, TV programs show critical aid getting to remote homes in the countryside. Homes many didn't realize were always so isolated.
6: Unfortunately, they waited until Maria to do it, but it should have been done before. And uh, that's the reality that Puerto Ricans didn't want to accept or even see.
5: Puerto Ricans have also been confronted with their place in the Caribbean.
8: Puerto Ricans don't often imagine themselves as one of the little islands, even though we are,
5: right? Yarimar Bonilla is an anthropologist at Rutgers University, now working on a book about the crisis. She says that as bad as things got in Puerto Rico during its 10-year recession, the relationship with the U.S. always set the island apart from the rest of the Caribbean. We
8: always have thought of ourselves as better off than our Dominican neighbors and our Cuban neighbors. And so right now, Cuba, they were able to recover from Irma quickly. They got their power back and they're doing good. The Dominican Republic, they're sending us aid and everything we're eating is from over there. Besides,
5: the U.S. sent more American troops and helicopters to Haiti in the days after the 2010 earthquake than we sent to Puerto Rico. So
8: it's really forcing Puerto Ricans to come to terms with that reality. I don't know where that will lead.
5: Politically, All discussions inevitably lead to the issue of the island's political status. And here we are. But first, an observation. In my first week in Puerto Rico, 50 days after the storm hit, I began to notice a pattern. Even after telling me that washing laundry by hand made their skin raw, or that reading by candlelight was straining their eyes, people would also tell me they had gotten used to a new normal. They had grown accustomed. Acostumbrados. <laughs> No two disasters are alike, but would Floridians or Texans just get used to not having electricity for two months, now going on three? Puerto Ricans have settled into a kind of extended coping limbo. Community groups were activated to help, but restoring the full electric grid could take months. Again, Yarimar Bonilla of Rutgers.
8: Like when I ask people, like, why don't you protest or how does this make you feel about the government? Like one guy said, what what am I going to do? I'm not going to shoot myself in the head. It's a phrase that people use here. I think it speaks to the lack of options that people imagine. So it's either I accept it or I leave or I
5: take my own life. So a lack of perceived options. And yet one of the words you hear a lot in Puerto Rico is resilience.
9: Resilience is a human capacity to deal with tenacity when confronted with traumatic and difficult situations.
5: Alfredo Carasquillo is a psychoanalyst and an expert on leadership at the University of the Sacred Heart in San Juan.
9: But resilience is not resignation. Huh? Resilience implies being stronger to handle things. And when things are not fair and not just, you confront them. So I'm not that sure if What we are seeing in many people in Puerto Rico is resilience or resignation. Resilience has political potential. Resignation has no political potential.
5: I first met Carrasquillo in June while reporting a piece for On the Media about the use of the word colony to describe Puerto Rico's relationship to the mainland. For decades, Puerto Ricans used euphemisms like commonwealth or associated free state. But many had begun to use a label they felt was more honest, albeit painful, Carrasquillo uses colony, and he says it's essential to understanding why Puerto Ricans don't protest more.
9: It doesn't surprise me. What surprises me is our inability as a people to respond with anger to indignity. That resignation is impressive.
5: I will say that people are afraid more than resign, are, are afraid. Sandra Rodriguez-Cotto, host of that nightly call-in show on WAPA Radio, hears constantly from callers about how hard it is just to get by and how they fear losing what little they have.
10: If you ask people, people don't want to be separated from the United States. We feel American, even though we might think we're Puerto Rican culturally, that's a dichotomy, that's a contradiction that we have. And I think it's because of so many years of being a colony.
5: There's a history of protesters being persecuted on the island, especially those in the independence movement. Entire families were blacklisted by the government. In the 50s, a gag law banned public speech about independence and even outlawed displaying the Puerto Rican flag. Now, says Coto, Maria has exposed the island's real status as a U.S. colony. No more euphemisms. Americans, some of them anyway, are finally paying attention.
10: I think the American public, for the first time ever, is seeing Puerto Rico for what it is. I mean, we're being on the forefront of the news. So now people are saying, wow, we have some people dying and we're doing in Puerto Rico what we have been criticizing in other places. They might feel a little bit embarrassed for what they're seeing in Puerto Rico.
5: The columnist Benjamín Torres-Cotay thinks that if this were anywhere else, There would be major protests in the streets. People demanding more government help and a faster recovery. But after more than 100 years of U.S. colonial rule, Puerto Ricans are used to waiting and fending for themselves.
6: People here protest by immigrating. So that is a fact of life in Puerto Rico. That is a characteristic of the people of Puerto Rico, basically. Resignation, yeah. People here are not used to stand up to power. I asked him. How do you solve that? Well, uh, I don't have an answer. Uh, Colonialism is a two-way problem, and the colonial power is the United States. They have to speak clearly, and they have not done that in over a hundred years.
7: In your article with Naomi Klein, Imagine a Puerto Rico Recovery Designed by Puerto Ricans, you talk about kind of a shock doctrine approach to disaster relief. Can you explain what you mean by that to our audience?
11: Yeah, you know, uh, we're, we're calling it a just recovery because what we see in these situations, particularly in the global south, is that people come in with the solutions and they're really band-aids because even if they take care of the immediate problem, they don't take care of The legacy of problems. Like before Hurricane Maria, I think something like 60% of the population was unemployed. But Promesa, which is, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Promesa, but it's the Puerto Rico Oversight Management and Economic Stability Act. It's basically a fiscal company made up of businesses, was really imposing austerity on the island. So it was already bad. The situation was already bad because Puerto Rico is a colony of the United States. So the solutions can't be top down. They, you can't have a bunch of nonprofits coming in. They really, really have to put the resources in the hands of the Puerto Rican people. And the Puerto Rican people, you know, when we met, Uh, We're talking about the fact that before the storm, 80% of the island got its food from outside and 20% of the island, that agricultural land was wiped out by Maria. And so they have this big goal of food sovereignty and creating local livable economies based on systems that make it possible for people on the island to feed themselves. And so they're reclaiming the land, they are reclaiming seeds and they're building and they're growing things and they want to prepare themselves for a future where they're There will be more extreme weather events and a future where they don't have to depend on the United States to survive. And that's what we mean by a just recovery. So our brigades have gone there to basically listen and to support and to help build and follow the leadership of the people most impacted. That's a very different model than what other folks do, which is basically sweep down like they did in New Orleans and like they did in New York City with tons and tons of resources to tell people locally what the solutions should be. The truth is that we're living in the age of climate change and people will have to feed themselves and they're going to have to be able to build these systems. So Just Recovery is an investment in that sort of, you know, Puerto Rico-led effort for Puerto Ricans. I also met these women who have this model that's based on participatory rebuilding that looks at, A variety of things that can happen in a coastal community, in a mountain community, in an urban community, understanding that, and they're from there, understand then that even in a tiny island like Puerto Rico, the solutions from place to place are going to be different based on the topography, on the culture, and on the people who live there. So I think, I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about a just recovery, and it's sort of based on this idea of just transitions that comes out of a movement space that comes out of the climate justice and environmental justice movement. All over the United States and the global south,
5: yeah,
7: i don't I don't know that it, uh, the average citizen realizes that oftentimes these relief efforts are a business opportunity for big businesses that come in from the outside. And even economic the ongoing economic development of Puerto Rico or other places, a lot of the money that is spent by government tends to be supporting efforts of people who are extracting from local economies as opposed to that kind of grassroots just development, just relief that you're talking about. So it's fantastic to hear that you're seeing so much energy on the ground and the brigades are going there. What do you think the chances are that the redevelopment of Puerto Rico, the recovery effort will stay in the hands or be driven more by local people than by outside forces?
11: No, we're really concerned because it would be arrogant to say that the outside forces aren't moving quickly and are coming in heavy handed to basically uh, privatize entire parts of Puerto Rico. So it's hard. In New York City, what we've done is based on the Our Power PR campaign that was created by Climate Justice Alliance, Grassroots International, a lot of our partners, we created Our Power PR NYC, which is basically um, Puerto Rican diaspora response to key. Puerto Rico in the press and to basically monitor what's happening with disaster capitalism in Puerto Rico so that we can put on pressure from here. Already they've closed 184 schools and are looking to turn them into charter schools the way that they did in New Orleans. They're basically uh, implementing a minimum wage of $4.25 for everyone 25 years old and younger. In Vieques, which is a little island off of Puerto Rico, they've lost a third of their residents and gentrifiers have moved in and are having car conversations about the future of Puerto Rico without Piquenses in those meetings. And the ferry service, which is the only way of getting in and out of the island for people on the island, is not working. So people can't get off the island for healthcare. They can't get off for educational or, or job opportunities. They're literally... Stuck on this tiny little island without resources. And there's talk that that ferry is going to be privatized. So, all of that from the electrical grid to schools to transportation, amenities, things that are basic for a community to survive and thrive are part of a conversation about a privatization in Puerto Rico. And that's just corporations that see the disaster in Puerto Rico as an opportunity for further extraction. And when I say extraction, I I don't just talk about the natural resources. I also talk about the labor of people, sort of turning people, deepening colonization for people that are already second class citizens on their own land. That's also nonprofits that we know that, for example, in the United States, a bunch of organizations got together to decide what to do in Puerto Rico without talking to Puerto Ricans, without asking them, what do you need? Which are the organizations on the ground that we can support in a strategic effort to support you rather than supplant local leadership? So this idea of disaster capitalism goes as far as it's part of the culture of capitalism to basically take and really kick people when they're down. And then this, idea that nonprofits can come in and help is also turning people into passive recipients of their good intentions and saying, we have the solutions and we're going to help you. We've had graduate students call and say, we want to write a paper on what's happening in Puerto Rico. Can you connect us to people without asking us, Hey, will I be in the way really? So people who are really fighting for survival are going to stop what they're doing so that you could write your paper. That's all disaster capitalism. All of that is this idea that you can just exploit people for your own benefit, for your own political or economic purposes. So that's all happening in Puerto Rico on a grand scale and on a very local scale.
7: And so my understanding is that the relief some of the relief funding that's been come through Congress so far, that the places like Texas and Florida and and other places that California that have received Disaster relief, it comes in the form of a grant, but at least a portion, if not all of the disaster relief to Puerto Rico is in the form of a loan. Is that accurate?
11: Yep, yeah, that's true. It's basically not a grant. So what it does is it deepens the debt. And we've, you know, there was already a debt crisis as a result of colonialism and austerity policies inflicted by on the island by the U.S. government. And so, you know, one of the things that we've been saying is that they have to drop the debt and they need to be able, and, and that what Puerto Rico needs is debt relief to so focus on emergency response and adjust recovery from this extractive economy. There's also tax cuts. And then there's the Jones Act. We know that Puerto Rico is treated like a foreign country when it comes to taxes. So it's literally penalized constantly without recognizing all of the years and all of the billions of dollars that the United States has gotten out of that tiny little island. So, yeah, this uh, oversight committee is basically uh, you keep hearing people say, say no to promesa because you can't divorce the emergency response and recovery issues from the fact that this this body of people is actually crippling Puerto Rico with debt. It was already crippling with debt and a crumbling infrastructure before the storm. So and a lot of that had to do with U.S. policies.
7: Yeah. So I think that, you know, for probably a lot of our listeners may understand this, but we should probably just walk through this for a second. So the folks who live in Puerto Rico are American citizens, but they lack representation in Congress. They can't vote for president. We impose a tax regime and structure on them that they don't have a say in. But the converse side of that 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 might come back to bite folks in this particular situation is they are American citizens and they can relocate to other states. And so, like you've said, 300,000 folks have relocated perhaps to, to Florida, which could have huge electoral implications. So I'm wondering, as someone who is not, I may be not up on Puerto Rico to the degree that I should be, why has Puerto Rico languished in this state for so long? And why has nothing happened across different administrations to change that dynamic, to more incorporate Puerto Rico, which is part of the United States, as a full, fully participating part of the United States?
11: That's an interesting question because conflict of who Wants Puerto Rico to be a state, and who wants to retain the Commonwealth status and independence that continues to separate communities. And one of the things that folks are saying to those that are state that are pro statehood is that so you want the country that is responsible for sterilizing a third of our women, basically making us citizens just so that we could, they could have bodies in World War One. You want the country that has denied us water, food, and health care to have more power over Puerto Rico, and they ask the question. They say, basically say, if you want to know what it's like to be a state of the United States for people of color, for a nation made up of people of African and indigenous ancestry to be a state, ask the people from Hawaii how it feels to be second class citizens in their own nation and be turned into mascots. So there is a lot of, one of the things that has happened since the storm is that there's a lot of conversation about sovereignty, about breaking off the relationship with the United States entirely because people feel if they have to fend for themselves, then why even be part of the United States? That relationship doesn't benefit Puerto Rico in any way. It only benefits businesses. U.S. businesses are the only ones that and other corporations that the United States bring in are the only ones really benefiting from that relationship. So that's the conversation that's being had right now. And you have to think about, yeah, they are citizens and they've been citizens since 1917. And the reason they became citizens was so that they could fight in World War I. And then those of us who were born and raised in the United States, we find it amazing that people in the United States don't even know that Puerto Ricans are citizens, that people are always telling us, go back to where you came from, or you should be deported. That the level of ignorance is so deep in this country, and it's so unfortunate. So these programs, like the one you're doing right now, is really necessary because the situation, the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States is complex. They created a state of dependency where they basically changed change the entire agro economy, they created a state of dependency, they bought in all these petrochemical industries. And then people started complaining that people in Puerto Rico depended on the United States. But the state of dependency was created to create a space for US businesses. So it's kind of a cycle. And then we get stereotyped as people who don't want to work when the jobs aren't there and the businesses are really there to serve U.S. economic interests. So a lot of our migrations have had a lot to do with U.S. policies that have been created to benefit uh, U.S. economic interests.
1: According to a recent study by the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College in New York, more than 135,000 Puerto Ricans have fled to the U.S. mainland since the storm. Puerto Rico's governor, Ricardo Rosselló, is moving to privatize PREPA, one of the largest public power uh, utilities in the United States.
2: The governor is also pushing for privately-run charter schools and private school vouchers. On Monday, teachers across Puerto Rico held a one-day strike to protest the privatization plan. Meanwhile, displaced Puerto Ricans protested Tuesday in Washington, D.C., outside the headquarters of FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Well, today we spend the hour looking at the future of Puerto Rico, which was already facing a massive economic crisis before the storm hit six months ago. From Toronto, best-selling author and journalist Naomi Klein, author of many books, including The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. She's just published a major piece for The Intercept on the future of Puerto Rico. It's titled, The Battle for Paradise. Puerto Rico and ultra-rich Puerto Pians are locked in a pitch struggle over how to remake the island. You've just written this epic piece. Explain what you found and what you mean by your title, The Battle for Paradise. Puerto Ricans and ultra rich Portopians are locked in a pitch struggle over how to remake the island.
12: Good morning, Amy and Juan and Yarimar. It's great to be with you. Um, so what I'm referring to is, is that in this moment when so much attention is focused on the failures of FEMA, the failures of, uh, the entire relief and reconstruction project, as, as it rightly should be because this is an ongoing humanitarian emergency, we're seeing this strategy that we've seen in many other disaster zones that we've spoken about many times, which is exploiting that state of shock and distraction and emergency to push through a radical corporate agenda. Uh, you, you referred earlier to the plans to privatize PREPA, to open up Puerto Rico's school system, to charter schools and vouchers at the same time as radically downsizing it, closing 300 schools on the back. Of already having closed more than 340 schools uh, by exploiting the economic crisis um, in the past decade. Um, all in all, we'd be talking about the closing of half of Puerto Rico's public schools. So a radical downsizing, deregulation, and privatization of the state. But that isn't the only thing that's going on in Puerto Rico. There is also a powerful resistance movement uh, that was uh, what that was really gaining ground before Maria hit. That was resisting this illegitimate legitimate debt, um, this previous uh, shock doctrine strategy of exploiting the economic crisis to push these very same policies. Um, But they aren't just saying no, they're also proposing a people's recovery process that would rebuild uh, Puerto Rico in the interest of Puerto Ricans, a very, very different vision that's grounded in food sovereignty, in um, growing much more of the food Puerto Ricans eat in Puerto Rico by small farmers using agroecological methods not privatizing Puerto Rico's electricity system, but shifting to a decentralized, uh, um, community-controlled model uh, that is um, based on renewable energy, all kinds of other de- uh, deeply democratic uh, um, changes. And so there's this this pitch struggle and a kind of race against time over whose vision for the island is going to triumph in, in this window.
1: Well, Naomi, you begin your, your piece, uh, talking about the town of Ajuntas and up in the, in the mountains of Puerto Rico and also about one of these grassroots organizations that even before the storm had already been pioneering, uh, uh, at least electric, electricity generation for their own center. Could you talk about that some?
12: Sure, Juan. I mean, one of the things that I found um, most striking when I was reporting, uh, in Puerto Rico was, you know, we heard so much about what didn't work and almost everything didn't work. The, the food system collapsed. The energy system completely collapsed and, and, and is still in a state of collapse. But there were a few things that did work. And one of the things that worked in the community that you're referring to was solar power. And, um, there was, there is this community center in, uh, in Ajuntas, which, um, is called Casa Puebla. It's, it's, uh, been around for decades, Uh, it's been at the center of a lot of major fights in Puerto Rico against open pit mining, against logging, against uh, gas pipelines, but they've also been building their alternatives. And they've had solar panels on their roof for more than 20 years. And after uh, Maria wiped out the electricity grid, it turned out that Casa Puebla's, uh, um, solar panels, rooftop solar panels survived, survived the hurricane force winds, survived the falling debris. And so you had this beacon, uh, uh Arturo Massal, who is the director of the, the board of directors of Casa Puebla described it as an energy oasis. So in the midst of this sea of darkness, you have this community center that has light the day after Maria because their solar panels survived. And so people came there. It becomes this hub. Of people to people recovery, they, they start handing out uh, uh, solar lanterns, and um, and it becomes this kind of field hospital where people plug in their medical devices. Um, so this is you know very intensely practical, and we saw some similar things happening on farms as well.
1: And Naomi, this was a town that was not only had no electricity and no water, but was completely cut off from the rest of the island for uh, quite a while because of the roads washed out, right?
12: as so many uh, communities were uh that that you know that outside of San Juan particularly in the mountains where, where where roads were either obstructed by fallen trees and branches or by mudslides so yeah completely cut off um it's weeks before they receive any substantial aid
2: its founder got the Goldman Prize, is that right, um, uh, the environmental prize in San Francisco? Him, his son, and the community building this place that became this um, sunny satellite, just shocking, given what was around, the darkness around them and and it's not the only
12: example of this that i that i saw I, I also saw an amazing um example of this in the community of mariana in humacao where uh, you know as where they were a, a um a, an amazing mutual aid center uh, was constructed in the failure of FEMA and the failure of the state to respond uh, to this disaster. So people uh, linked in with the Puerto Rican diaspora, got their own solar panels installed. Um, and then this become, you know, while I was there, I I, I witnessed, um, you know, a, a, an elderly man come in, plug in his oxygen machine because this was the still. And at this point, it was um, five months after Hurricane Maria the only source of electricity in the region. So often in the aftermath of disasters, and every time I hear it, it really sets me off, and that's the blank slate or the blank canvas. I heard it after Hurricane Katrina. I heard it when I was covering the U.S. invasion of Iraq. The idea that 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 suddenly you have a blank slate or a blank canvas um, where you can kind of do anything, uh, and and it's a kind of crazy idea because the the canvas in a war torn country or you know a region that's just been slammed by a Category five hurricane. Um, is anything but blank. I mean, it is a mess. It is, it is pure rubble and misery. But from the, from the perspective of, of real estate developers or would-be private, you know, privatizers of, of utilities, this is what they see. And, and, um, Puerto Rico's governor, Ricardo Roseo used that phrase in New York, talking to um, in, uh, investors uh, or would-be investors about a month ago, where he where he described he described the island as as a blank canvas um, where you can kind of do anything. And what that's you know what that's referring to is is the state of desperation of the people that that what disasters do when people are necessarily focused on the daily emergency of life, just getting by, because they don't have a roof on their house, because they you know that their workplace isn't open and they have to go to the US to make any money. Um all of that it means that people have less energy for political engagement. More of their energy goes into survival, less of their um energy goes into protecting their political interests. And that's the that's the opportunity that 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 disaster capitalists see. Um, the opportunity of not having to deal with pesky people with their pesky opinions about, you know, what their lives should be like. And you know, I I, I often quote this um article that came out in the Wall Street Journal a couple months after Hurricane Katrina, written by the very famous late free market economic guru Milton Friedman and he wrote this piece in the Wall Street Journal saying um you know New Orleans is, has been evacuated it's the uh, the teachers and parents and students are scattered throughout the United States this is a tragedy it is also an opportunity an opportunity to radically remake the education system and um and sure enough New Orleans you know Closed down its public schools, fired all of its teachers, and, um, and now has the most privatized education system, uh, in the United States. The, 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 you know, the, the most charter schools. Um, so, so that's, that's the appeal of disasters is really just getting the people out of the way, either because they're physically removed as in the case of, of New Orleans. And, and that's also true of, of uh, um, Puerto Rico right now that, um, you know, somewhere between 200,000 and 300,000 Puerto Ricans have left Puerto Rico and come to the U S mainland mainland. We don't, they're not keeping solid records. That's the estimate. Um, and, uh, and, be, and, Either, so either because they're physically gone or because they're there but they're so focused on the emergency of life that it's possible to push through policies that you would never be able to otherwise because there would be too much resistance.
7: Are you
13: suggesting, are you seeing in your research government, the American government, purposefully not helping the people of either New Orleans or Puerto Rico so that – uh, this sort of disaster capitalism is able to do its thing?
12: Um, so I think that there is a casualness about the the relief effort, the failures of the relief effort, because I do believe that there is an understanding that the worse things get, the more palatable it becomes to sell a policy like Selling off the electricity system, which is the, the the first, you know, we started hearing about this before Maria made landfall. People, you, the business press was already speculating that in the aftermath of, well, actually, first Hurricane Irma and then Hurricane Maria, um, there we would see the privatization of Puerto Rico's electrical utility. And the reason why there was speculation is because there were there were already interests that wanted to do that before the storm, so. Look, it's a really hard question to answer. I can tell you that a huge number of Puerto Ricans I spoke with are absolutely convinced that the slowness of the, uh, of the response, the fact that it has taken months to get the lights back on, um, the fact that they're, even once they were back on, they started to get threatened with, you know, having, losing their electricity again. People felt that they were, uh, that this was happening to sort of soften them up for the idea of privatization because there's a lot of resistance to privatization in Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, if you haven't had electricity for four, five, six months and, and you're being told, well, the only way to fix this is to sell off your electricity grid, then you'll reach for anything. (laughs) You know, I mean, it's just human. Um, so I believe it's some mixture, to be honest, of incompetence, of cronyism, and just a kind of a laissez-faire attitude that like, well, you know, if things go badly, that could actually work out for the best because people, um, you know, people, people will, you know, will be more willing to accept these unpopular policies. I mean, when I was covering, uh, Hurricane Katrina, You know, two weeks after the storm, I was in the city and a Republican uh, congressman named Richard Baker said um, we couldn't clean out the housing projects in New Orleans, but God did. Right.
13: Um, A a congressman said that to you?
12: Well, he didn't say it to me. He was reported in the press. um, He said that
13: to some reporter.
12: Yeah, he said it publicly. Um, and, you know, when I was in Baton Rouge, I was talking, I was interviewing lobbyists, real estate lobbyists, you know, that kept talking about blank slate, clean slate. And what they meant was like the poor black people of New Orleans are not here to defend their homes, to defend their schools. And this is valuable Property, and 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 so you know I realize this can sound a bit like a conspiracy theory, which is why I like to quote people. You yeah. know, they don't actually hide it, um, and uh, you know it's just a question of connecting the
13: dots. I mean, it does sound like a conspiracy theory, but I know how much you and others it's- have been working and talking about this and researching this, and uh, I mean, you you it does seem like. There are folks in Washington or in various state houses who are saying, if we let them starve, th- many of them will leave and then we'll be able to, you know, sell this land or sell these services for a, at a much better, uh, uh value for all of us.
12: And, and, and I think what makes it more obvious in Puerto Rico and what makes it less of a conspiracy and just kind of straight reporting is that before the hurricanes um, there 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 was Puerto Rico was was in an economic crisis and that economic crisis, was actively used to attack what little democracy puerto ricans have right i mean puerto rico is essentially a colony puerto ricans are not able to vote for the u.s president they don't have an elected representative in congress yet they have to live under u.s laws right Um, they do however have the ability to vote
13: excuse me do they pay taxes to the american government
12: they do they pay taxes
13: taxation without representation
12: straight up, right? Wow. Um, but they do have some representation in that they're able to vote for their governor, they're able to vote for their mayors. Mm-hmm. And in 2016, the debt crisis in Puerto Rico um, was used to pass this law called PROMESA, which effectively did away with this minimal democracy and created a, a, a an emergency management board, which is very similar to the emergency management board in Detroit, in Flint, Michigan, right, where the bankruptcy of a city is used to say, you know what, you, and this is almost always done in, in majority black and brown cities to say, we don't trust you anymore to elect your own representatives. Um, because of your economic crisis, this is we are now going to appoint this emergency management body that is going to make all the economic decisions for you. And we've seen how disastrous that is, has been in Flint. We've seen how disastrous it has been to the school system. In Detroit, it is often used as the pretext to privatize and for brutal austerity. In Puerto Rico, it was done for the whole island. And so there is this fiscal, it's called the Fiscal Control Board. In Puerto Rico, they call it the junta which has this double meaning because it is you know a board a junta but it is also like it has this double entendre of a you know of a of a, of a coup d'etat because it because this board is able to um, override the decisions of their governor the governor has to propose a fiscal plan to this appointed board um and so yeah it's 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 um it it's it's unmasked colonial rule ever since uh, 2016. So this was already happening. And the fiscal board was already proposing uh, closing hundreds of Puerto Rican schools. They wanted to close more than 300 schools. They wanted to cut the budget of the University of Puerto Rico in half. Um, they wanted to privatize the electricity system. Um, and so and, but they were having trouble and Puerto Ricans were resisting And just a few months. And this was one of the things that I learned when I was there that I didn't know ahead of time was that the movement against the fiscal control board and the movement questioning the legitimacy of the debt um, and resisting these privatization policies really peaked just a few months uh, before Hurricane Maria. So on May 1st, 2017, there was the largest second largest protest in Puerto Rico's history uh, against these policies and against the fiscal control board um and then so that's may and then september hurricane maria hits and the very policies that they were trying to push through before maria resurface let's close 300 schools let's have charter schools and vouchers let's sell off the electricity grid so I mean, this is why I'm saying it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just, you know, just reporting. They were trying to do it before the storm. They were having trouble. The storm hits. The very same policies come back with a vengeance when people are least able to protect their interests.
13: Do you see examples of this in New Orleans of the government saying we're going to be slow to fix New Orleans so that we can uh, revitalize for the rich?
12: I mean in New Orleans it was it was so brutal. Um, I you know in that you had a a total evacuation of the city and this extraordinary thing of um of of you know it's 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 worth remembering that that people were given one-way tickets to every state in the United States and no way to come back, right? Um and in their absence, you know, while they were physically unable to protect their homes and schools, um, public housing projects were demolished and replaced with, uh, you know, what they call mixed-use housing, which means that there are many fewer uh, housing options for low-income people. Um, you know, not to say that the public housing was was wonderful and perfect, but it was so incredibly anti-democratic. So in New Orleans, it was—I think—it was less the strategy of. Let's just kind of do nothing. I mean, it was incredibly active, the, 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 the demolishing of, of the um, public. Health. I think there was a huge rush in New Orleans to get this, um, this sort of extreme city makeover done.
13: It seems immoral. It seems immoral to allow people to suffer without food and water so that you can create a different economic model in that area.
12: You know, Tori, I've always thought so, which is why I'm kind of obsessed with this. I mean, you know, there was a, a young woman who I interviewed. Her name is Monica Flores. You know, she said to me, it's cruel. Like, I asked her how, how it felt to you – because know, she was describing to me that she was, you know, sort of still living in her car and going from, um, you know, friend's house to friend's house to, to do laundry. Um, and And she was somebody who was studying – the energy system, who um, you know had strong opinions about how Puerto Rico could switch from a fossil fuel-based energy system to renewable energy, but she believed it should remain public. That communities should own and control their own renewable energy projects, and she'd been working with communities um, to do just that. It, you know, and in the, it, and, and so you know, I asked her how it felt to turn on the television and see the governor announce that the electricity system was going to be privatized. And she started crying and said, um, you know, it's it's what it feels like is is it's cruel to do this in a moment when um, you know, of course people can't engage in you know, they're they're just trying to survive.
0: From the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202 999 3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman, as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast with new episodes coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from com.